Chapter Twelve of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Horner from Ballyclare in County Antrim, Northern Ireland. English Literature by Geraldine Ogson. Chapter Twelve, Essays and Letters. An essay is not a collection of words flung together anyhow about nothing in particular nor is it merely a difficult element in the process of passing an examination nor should it ever be just a method of that money-making which is legitimate enough when we boil together unpleasant substances to make soap or candles in its simplest essence an essay is a composition according to flexible but orderly rules something deliberately thought out duly said about some person or thing or idea which to the writer seems to be of interest and importance strictly speaking an essay should set forth the particular point to be discussed should then deal with that point fully from various standpoints and finally come to a just conclusion from the facts and arguments it is a form of composition more naturally handled by the logical lucid french mind than by us who are more diffuse more apt to stray into bypaths yet the great montaigne was discursive enough and our own francis bacon kept more to his main point perhaps than the frenchman perhaps no englishman has been so purely an essayist as saint beuve in his earlier part of the french nineteenth century macaulay who played a somewhat similar part was less bound by rules among the chief english essayists francis bacon who popularized essays will always have a conspicuous place his first collected essays few in number appeared in fifteen ninety seven when in sixteen twenty five he was dedicating the third a much enlarged edition to the duke of buckingham he wrote i do now publish my essays which of all my works have been most current for that as it seems they come home to men's business and bosoms that is no formal definition yet it seems to convey the main qualities of the true essay its spirit of search for to essay is to attempt something its brevity its completeness and in a small compass its friendliness his essay of beauty is perhaps not his finest nor his best known but it perhaps deserves less than some dean church's criticism he cast what he had to say into connected holes but nothing can be more loose than the structure of the essays moreover it is short and it deals with a single point virtue is like a rich stone best plain set and surely virtue is best in a body that is comely though not of delicate features and that hath rather dignity of presence than beauty of aspect neither is it almost seen that very beautiful persons are otherwise of great virtue as if nature were rather busy not to err than in labour to produce excellency and therefore they prove accomplished but not of great spirit and study rather behaviour than virtue but this holds not always for augustus caesar titus Vespasianus, philip de bell of france edward the fourth of england alcibiades of athens ishmael of sophie of persia were all high and great spirits and yet the most beautiful men of their times in beauty that of favour is more than that of colour and that of descent and gracious motion more than that of favour that is the best part of beauty which a picture cannot express no not the first sight of the life there is no excellent beauty 
that hath not some strangeness in the proportion a man cannot tell whether abels or albert durer were the more trifler whereof the one would make a personage by geometrical proportions the other by making the best parts out of divers faces to make one excellent such personages i think would please nobody but the painter who made them not but i think a painter may make a better face than ever was but he must do it by a kind of felicity as a musician that maketh an excellent air in music and not by rule a man shall see faces that if you imagine them part by part you shall never find a good and yet altogether do well if it be true that the principal part of beauty is in decent motion certainly it is no marvel though persons in years see many times more amiable plutorum autumnus pulture for no youth can be comely but by pardon and considering the youth as to make up the comeliness beauty is as summer fruits which are easy to corrupt and cannot last and for the most part it makes a desolate youth and an age of little out of countenance but yet certainly again if it light well it maketh virtue shine and vices blush the dramatist ben johnson possibly encouraged by bacon's example published in sixteen forty one a slender collection of sayings of which some amount to essays described as discoveries made upon men and matters which he quaintly called timber for just as we are commonly wont to call a vast number of trees growing indiscriminately a wood so also did the ancients call those of their books in which were collected at random articles upon various and diverse topics woods and timber trees people may object that articles upon various and diverse topics are not essays admittedly many of them are but causal reflections among the longer pieces these classical judgments on shakespeare and bacon whom ben johnson obviously regarded as not one and the same person may be fitly included here as essays as attempts at expressing a single matter supremely well the first as for title de shakespeare nostrate i remember the players have often mentioned it as an honour to shakespeare that in his writing whatsoever he penned he never blotted out a line my answer hath been would he had blotted a thousand which they thought a malevolent speech i had not told prosperity this but for their ignorance who chose that circumstance to commend their friend by wherein he most faulted and to justify mine own candour for i loved the man and do honour his memory on this side idolatry as much as any he was indeed honest and of an open and free nature had an excellent fantasy brave notions and gentle expressions wherein he flowed with that facility that sometimes it was necessary he should be stopped so flaminatus erat as augustus said of heterius his wit was in his own power would the rule of it have been so too many times he fell into those things could not escape laughter as when he said in the person of caesar once speaking to him caesar thou dost me wrong he replied caesar did never wrong but with just cause and such like which were ridiculous but he redeemed his vices and his virtues there was evermore in him to be praised than to be pardoned that on francis bacon is called dominus Brulamius. one though he be excellent and the chief is not to be imitated alone for never no imitator ever grew up to his author likeness is always on this side truth yet there happened in my time one noble speaker who was full of gravity in his speaking his language where he could spare or pass by a jest was nobly censorious 
No man ever spoke more neatly, more precisely, more weightily, or suffered less emptiness, less idleness in what he uttered. No member of his speech, of his own graces, his hearers could not cough or look aside from him without loss. He commanded where he spoke, and had his judges angry and pleased at his devotion. No man had ever their affections more in his power. The fear of every man that heard him was lest he should make an end. The end of the seventeenth and the eighteenth centuries were the great age of the English essayists. It was then that philosophy and criticism had their short but shining reign. We could not now call John Locke's great book on the human understanding an essay, but it was so called on its appearance. Even his shorter and more suggestive work, The Conduct of the Understanding, exceeds the scope and length of a true essay. Not so the writings of Abraham Cowley, John Dryden, Richard Steele and Joseph Addison, Samuel Johnson and Edmund Burke, whose genius made the English essay a great form of literary art. The 19th century produced Coleridge, De Quincey, Hazlitt, and the best-known, most loved of them all, James Lamb. Macaulay filled the middle years. He was commonly called an essayist, but probably John Morley, who among his little monographs on great men wrote a few essays, was right in attributing to him a true genius for narration, rather than the detachment and critical spirit of a true writer of essays. We may be sure, says Morley, that no author could have achieved Macaulay's boundless popularity among his contemporaries unless his work had abounded in what is substantially commonplace. Undoubtedly Macaulay's contemporaries hailed him as the great essayist of the day. Yet these strictures of John Morley, a critic of great insight and of justice as great, are serious weighty charges and his final attack when we remember that an essay is an attempt to estimate the real secret of a given matter seems to indicate that Macaulay's countrymen were strong that they should have regarded him as a superb scene painter. Morley writes of him, he seeks truth, not as she should be sought devoutly, tentatively, and with the air of one touching the hem of a sacred garment, but clutching her by the hair of the head and dragging her after him in a kind of boisterous triumph, a prisoner of war, and not a goddess. Such a process may or may not be legitimate, but at least it is not the essayist way. In the closing years of the twentieth century, the essay became very popular, and the way which had been illumined by Matthew Arnold and Frederick Myers became even subtler and more intricate in the hands of Alice Meynell, that true poet, and Walter Pater, who loved all beauty with a deathless devotion. Such work cannot be exhibited in extracts. The essay is, in some sort, like the sonnet among poems, a thing by itself, with its own form and rules. Therefore scraps are of no avail. Essays should be studied whole. Lamb's essays are, for the most part, too long for one to be included here, but apart from Elia, he wrote a series of popular fallacies, one of these on that saying which must, at least in youth, have annoyed many of us, that enough is as good as a feast, is not only a good instance of comprehensive handling in a very small space, but it is also not at all a bad revelation of his peculiar tastes, wit, and humour. Not a man, woman or child, in ten miles around Guildhall, who really believes this saying? The inventor of it did not believe it himself. It was made in revenge by somebody who was disappointed of a regal. It is a vile, cold scrag of mutton sophism, a lie faked upon the palate, which knows better things. If nothing else could be said for a feast, this is sufficient. 
that from the superfluous there is usually something left for the next day morally interpreted it belongs to a class of proverbs which have a tendency to make us undervalue money of this caste are those notable observations that money is not health riches cannot purchase everything the metaphor which makes gold to be mere muck with the morality that traces fine clothing to the sheep's bag and denounces pearl as the unwholesome excretion of an oyster hence too the phrase which imputes dirt to acres a sophistry so barefaced that even the literal sense of it is only true in a wet season this and abundance of similar sage saws assuming to inculcate content we verily believe to have been the invention of some cunning borrower who had designs upon the purse of his wealthier neighbour which he could only hope to carry by force of these verbal jugglings translate any one of these sayings out of the artful metonymy which envelops it and the trick is apparent goodly legs and shoulders of mutton exhilarating cordial books pictures the opportunities of seeing foreign countries independence heart's ease a man's own time to himself are not muck however we may be pleased to scandalize with that appellation the faithful metal that provides him for us perhaps the only technical fault that can be found with this is that lamb went off at a tangent and forgot to return to the contrast between enough and the feast he might reply to such a criticism that he had forestalled it by his declaration that the statement is not meant in its literal sense but it is subterfuge with which aspect of it he deals thoroughly another form of composition was once literary it seems to have few if any exponents now in this age of hurry and letter cards it is the letter we have as we look through the past centuries not a few delightful letter writers milton gray walpole chesterfield and others the most famous collection is that of the paston family in the fifth century these letters dating from the wars of the roses have preserved in the most satisfactory form just because they were familiar letters written to give news in the present with no idea of being a research quarry hundreds of years later the military social and family life of those troubled years as this present book has but one aim to spread a love of beautiful and sound literature perhaps the following letter or part of a letter which milton the poet wrote to one of his many scholar friends is the best for quotation here he was writing to a florentine friend benito bionmati who had just ended the preparation of a grammar of tuscan the purest of italian dialects milton wrote thus i am glad to hear my dear bionmati that you are preparing new institutes of your native language and have just brought the work to a conclusion the way to frame which you have chosen is the same as that which some persons of this of the first genius have embraced and your fellow citizens seem ardently to expect that you will either illustrate or amplify or at least polish and methodize the labors of your predecessors by such a work you will lay your countrymen under no common obligation which they will be ungrateful if they do not acknowledge for i hold him to deserve the highest praise who fixes the principles and forms the manner of a state and makes the wisdom of his administration conspicuous both at home and abroad but i assign the second place to him who endeavours by precepts and by rules to perpetuate that style and idiom of speech and composition which have flourished in the purest periods of the language and who as it were throws up a trench around it that people may be prevented from going beyond the boundary almost by the terrors of a Romulian prohibition if we compare the benefits which each of these confers we shall find that the former alone can render the intercourse of the citizens 
just and conscientious but that the latter gives that gentility that elegance that refinement which are next to be desired the one inspires lofty courage and intrepid ardour against the invasion of an enemy the other exerts himself to annihilate that barbarism which commits more extensive ravages on the minds of men which is the intestine enemy of genius and literature by the taste which he inspires and the good authors which he causes to be read nor do i think it a matter of little moment whether the language of people be vitiated or refined whether the popular idiom be erroneous or correct this consideration was more than once found salutary at athens it is the opinion of plato that changes in the dress and habits of the citizens portend great commotions and changes in the state and i am inclined to believe that when the language in common use in any country becomes irregular and depraved it is followed by their ruin and their degradation for what do terms used without skill or meaning which are at once corrupt and misapplied denote but a people listless supine or ripe for servitude on the contrary we have never heard of any people or state which has not flourished in some degree of prosperity as long as their language has retained its elegance and its purity hence my benedito you may be induced to proceed in executing a work so useful to your country and may clearly see what an honourable and permanent claim you will have to the approbation of the gratitude of your fellow-citizens essays letters diaries are specialised forms of prose which could not very well be included in the earlier chapter called the treatise neither could all remembrance of them be left out of a book one of whose special purposes is to urge the variety of our literature and therefore the chance it offers to every one of us of finding something congenial wedded as we so obstinately are as a nation each of our own individual tastes the friendliness the quality of coming home to men's business and bosoms as bacon said inherent in these minor forms of literature may perhaps win its way with a few who seem to be embarrassed or overwhelmed with the greater masterpieces End of chapter 12